Excuse me. Open your Bibles, if you have them, to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, 36 to 46. I don't think I even need to repeat that. Matthew 26, 36 to 46. I did anyway. The longer I've been in, in pastoral ministry, uh, full-time now, going on 10 years, um, including part-time and, and various things, more like 12, I, I've come to see something about addiction. Addiction is a word that we use that is often... Um, a really negative, has a very negative connotation, and, and we often see people that are addicted as they've got problems, and the problems are out there, and they have addictions that they need to deal with. What I've come to see over the course of ministry is that really, we all deal with addiction. Every single one of us are addicted. If, if you define addiction as an attraction to things that don't satisfy, then in one way or another, every single one of us has an addiction to sin. Your addiction may not be my addiction, but we do share an addiction. We're all, to one degree or another, addicts on the road to recovery. And what that means is that as a redeemed body of believers... It's not that we no longer have an attraction to sin. Of course we do. We all share that. It's that we've been introduced to another attraction, a far superior attraction. We actually have an attraction to the Lord. He's given us that. A group of people who are not redeemed don't have that counteracting attraction. They only have the one attraction to sin. So all of us, who are called under Christ's name, if indeed we are Christians, we're addicts on the road to recovery. But what that tells us is that our flesh is weak. We're dealing with weakness. That is why we pursue the kinds of addictions that we pursue. In our passage this morning, we're going to see weakness on display. Weakness both in Jesus and the disciples. But what we're going to see is that they lead in two different directions. And what's going to be modeled for us is what it looks like to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven in the weakness of Christ. And what it looks like to be in the state we're in, in the person of the disciples. Let's read our passage, Matthew 26, 36 to 46. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little uh, further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand. And the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Let's pray over the teaching of this word. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our minds and our eyes and our hearts so we may understand what is written in your word. We may see it with our eyes. We may come to see it as truly beautiful and understand it with our hearts as designed to teach us, to correct us, to train us in righteousness. Pray that you would do that now, in Jesus' name, by your Spirit. Amen. Quite a bit has, has happened over the last few passages, going all the way back up to chapter, uh, the beginning of chapter 26. Remember, the disciples and Jesus, they're in the city of Jerusalem, and they're there to celebrate the Passover. And Jesus as they're going into Jerusalem, as they're in Jerusalem, and as they're getting ready to celebrate the Passover, he's made a prediction or two. That one, he's going to be handed up, he's going to be given over and delivered to uh, authorities, and he's going to be killed. And he's even told them beforehand that he's going to be resurrected. And he's told them even more recently that it's going to be through crucifixion that he's going to die. And then right after that, we cut across town, and we see under the cover of darkness, there is Caiaphas, in his palace, who is the high priest, and you see all the, the chief priests gathered around him, and there they make a determination that they are going to seek Jesus, and they're going to kill him after the crowds have been dispersed so that nobody gets any funny, nobody does any funny business. But then we learn in the next passage that the one that's going to actually play a big role in killing Jesus is none other than a disciple who is very close to him and has been close to him this whole time, Judas Iscariot. Judas steals away in the night and he sneaks off to the chief priest and to the, and to the high priest and he makes a deal with them where he's going to exchange the whereabouts of Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And we think maybe, well, Jesus is obviously unaware of this because he's got this guy really close to him. But we find out, no, that's not the case. In fact, Jesus is sovereignly aware that Judas is the one who will betray him. He had selected him from the beginning, knowing that that would be the case. So the eleven are now headed to the Mount of Olives, to the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas has now gone off to the chief priest to do the deed, to exchange Jesus for uh, for 30 pieces of silver and lead them to where Jesus is. And Jesus is talking with the 11 disciples that are remaining, and he tells them that they are going to fall away because of him tonight. It's going down. As soon as I'm arrested, y'all are going to take off running, and you're going to desert me, and you're going to leave me alone. And Peter, who is sort of the spokesman for the group, says, no way, Jose, that's not happening here. I am going to double down on my commitment to follow you, even if the rest of my brothers, he just throws them under the bus, and he's like, even if the other ten fall, I am not going to betray you. I'm going to hold strong, to which Jesus tells him, 
before the rooster crowed, before sunrise, you're going to deny me three times. So coming right on the heels of Peter declaring his strength to Jesus, he says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Coming on the heels of the disciples hearing Peter say that and saying, yeah, us too. Don't throw us under the bus. We're going to be right there with Peter. You would think that looking one paragraph later, it would be strange that we're hearing now of the disciples' weakness to even keep their eyes open long enough to endure the heavy soul that Christ has. That that would be strange. Surely not. Not two minutes, it seems, later in the Bible do we see the disciples feebly unable to keep their eyes open as they wait for Jesus to be tried. You would think, no way. They'll at least endure 30 minutes. Nope, not even 30 minutes. This passage is really about the weakness of the flesh. At its core... That's what it's doing here. It's Matthew showing what happens to the disciples to demonstrate to us just how weak the flesh really is. The disciples' weakness to follow through with their predictions, we're going to carry through to the end, Lord. We're going to be right there with you. We also see Jesus' weakness here. He admits to it. That he's sorrowful. To the point of destruction. As the cross draws ever closer, his weakness grows. But what we're going to see in the weakness of Jesus and the weakness of the disciples is that those weaknesses are really going two different directions. And it results in two completely different outcomes. We do certainly learn some things from Jesus' prayers here. But not nearly as much as you might think. There's a couple of things, sure, to glean from. But I don't think Matthew is intent on just showing us what Jesus prays. For one, he tells us in the third prayer, he went off and said the same thing. He just summarizes it. He doesn't even tell us, again, what he says. But we do, however, see some differences with the disciples. That they progress in weakness throughout the passage. And what we're going to see in this passage, more than anything, it's the only point that I want you to see here, is that Jesus is going to drink the cup of wrath because his disciples cannot. Jesus Christ is going to drink the cup of wrath because his disciples, yes, that includes you and me, are too weak to. Look first at, at Jesus' weakness here in the text. He leads the disciples, obviously, minus Judas, to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is on the Mount of Olives. It's a little place inside the Mount of Olives. You can actually still go there today and see the Mount of Olives in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he sits him down, and he takes Peter and James and John a little bit further. Peter and James and John became sort of something like his inner circle. Peter is obviously the spokesman of the group. He chimes in first all the time. He's kind of the spokesman. James and John are probably Jesus' cousins. And so he takes them a little bit further. They're his most trusted allies. And he confesses to them in verse 38 and 39, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Remember that, what he tells them to do here. Remain here and watch 
with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus is in anguish. There's no other way really to describe it. He's in absolute anguish. He says he's sorrowful even to death. Or we might say something like, the grief is killing me. Right? That's, that's where he's at. He's sorrowful even to death. He's so grieved, in fact, that we see that in the posture of his prayer. What does he do? He goes to pray, and he doesn't just kneel. He doesn't look up to heaven. He falls prostrate on his face, his face buried in the ground, asking his Father for deliverance. But what is it exactly that's causing the grief? Is it the journey to the cross? I mean, if you think about it for just a second, having nails driven into your hand, nails driven into your wrists, being nailed up on a cross and left to hung there and essentially suffocate to death has got to be emotionally gut-wrenching, knowing that that's coming. Having a crown of thorns put on your head, being scourged out in public and spat upon by people that you created has got to be less than warm fuzzies on the inside. But I think it's more specific than that. In fact, you can see it in his prayer. He actually prays, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. The cup is the problem. Not necessarily, precisely, the nails driven in or the crown of thorns, but the cup. What is the cup? Well, the cup that he's referencing is a common metaphor, and it's used throughout the Old Testament like in a few of these passages. Let me just read them, and you can kind of get a, a, a fla- the flavor of it. Isaiah 51, 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem. You have drunk from the, the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Or what about Jeremiah 25, 15 to 16? Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup, of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them. Or what about Psalm 75, 8? For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and He pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it to the dregs. This is the cup cup filled with the wine of the fury of the wrath of God, and Christ is going to have to drain it to the dregs. If we're going to be precise about it, that's what he's anxious about. That's what his soul is troubled about. The aspect of his death that seems to overwhelm his heart with sorrow is that he is going to be placed in the crosshairs of the wrath of God, and he is going to be made to drink it down to the dregs. Now, throughout human history, when God judges a nation and pours out the fury of his wrath, and the nations are made to drink from that cup, the way that happens, typically, 
is the most powerful army in the world moves in and conquers them. Jesus is going to be placed in the crosshairs of the wrath of God at the tip of the spear of the Roman government. And the Roman government is going to shove that spear right between his ribs. That's how you're going to see the wrath of God poured out on Jesus on the cross. It's that the spitting, the scourging, the nails in the hands and feet, and the crown of thorns points to the reality that Jesus is being judged by God the Father. He is facing God's wrath. Isaiah 53, 4-5 tells us this, Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. So it's not just facing the wrath of God, it's facing the wrath of God for His people. This is the manner in which God is going to save His people from their sins. For the first time ever, the eternal Son of God will face the fury of His Father's wrath. And we'll hear it from His own mouth. He's going to say it when He's on the cross. In Matthew 27, 46, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is, is worried chiefly about His exile from the Father. His isolation that's about to happen. His separation, if you will, from the Father. Yet, what do we see in the flesh? But Jesus resigned to the will of God. If it be your will, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus is destined to die alone. He's going to die in exile, in isolation, not just from God the Father, actually from his own disciples. They're going to lead him. And what do we see when he comes back to his pile of disciples? except that every last one of them is asleep. As good Baptists, sitting in church on Sunday morning, we know what that's like. To not be able to endure. We understand that all too well, and to be overcome with sleep. But here he comes back to his disciples, and what do we see? His disciples have fallen asleep. Now, it seems like it would be a minor detail, that they've fallen asleep, except that he has just asked them something very important. Remember what I told you to remember in the passage? I mean, it was late. They had just eaten. Oh, they're overcome with sleep. That's what all of us are to one degree or another. It wouldn't seem that unusual, except that he had asked them to remain here. And what does he say? Watch with me. Notice that this first time, he doesn't actually ask them to pray. He just asks them to watch. Now, watch can mean be alert, be on guard, watch your soul. But it can also mean something as little as stay awake with me. It seems that Jesus really, at least underneath it all, wants company from those his most trusted allies. Perhaps you've had someone close to you, like a spouse maybe, coming upon a big surgery the next morning, 
And that night, it's hard for them to get sleep. They just lie there awake, or maybe they just sit there in the living room awake, and, and they want someone to keep them company. Or maybe, maybe you've had a, a baby, and the baby has woken you up in the middle of the night, and the, the parent that gets up with the kid is tired, frustrated, maybe, let's be honest, maybe just a, a smidge angry, and has asked the, the other parent, could you just stay up with me? Just talk with me. Just keep me company. The purpose of Peter and James and John being a little closer to Jesus than the rest of the disciples, it seems, is not just to pray, but also to keep him company, to just stay awake. Now, if you ever have trouble seeing Jesus as truly human, come back and read this passage. And you can understand the kind of sorrow that he's under, the kind of grief, the kind of trouble, the kind of anxiety that he's feeling. Humans are communal creatures. We long for association, for friendship. And Jesus is no different. In moments of soul-crushing anguish, Jesus wants company from his disciples. But when he returns to his disciples, much like the parent who's feeding the baby, finds the other asleep. Jesus' humanity is on display. He's like us. He is worried. He's sorrowful. He's troubled. He's going to be alone, and his weakness leads him to do what? Leads him to seek the Father's counsel. That's the difference. That's not what it does to me. Weakness doesn't lead me to seek the Father's counsel, at least by default, but that's exactly where it leaves Jesus, seeking the Father's counsel. The disciples, though, who just the previous passage were so adamant, we are going to follow all the way to the end if it means our death. Lord, we are going to never leave your side. Have now so quickly given into their weakness, they cannot stay awake any longer. Their Lord, their friend, is in absolute anguish, and they can't even keep their eyes open. Can their care for his life enable them to stay awake, it seems that the answer is no. So what does Jesus then tell them? He takes it a little bit further this second time, and he says, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. And then he says, The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Remember, the disciples have been warned that they're going to fall away. All of you are going to fall away. Peter has been doubly warned that you're going to fall away, and you're not only going to fall away, you're going to deny me three times. So although they're, 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 to the, to, they're, they're weak with exhaustion, and they're too weak to even stay awake with Jesus, perhaps, maybe, the warnings that they're going to fall away might give them enough concern that, it, that they might go, you know what? He says, Pray that you might not fall into temptation. Oh, yeah, I remember. He said we were going to fall into temptation. So I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to double down here, and I'm going to test my strength, and I'm going to really pray so that I wouldn't fall into temptation because I know it's coming. This underscores something about Jesus' weakness that we need to take note of. Don't forget that Jesus 
is fully and truly God, but he's also fully and truly man. And what that means is he got tired, he got hungry, he got thirsty, he was emotional, he laughed, he cried, he had worries, he had fears, he had anxieties. He was a perfect human. Never did his emotions get to the point, uh, to a sinful extent, but they were present. He had them. Yet when his emotions overwhelm his very human soul, what happens to him? He turns to his father in prayer. And again, I, I reiterate, I, I struggle to do that. Don't you? What does your prayer life look like right now? If we were to go around and do a survey of the entire church, I guarantee you if you were to list the spiritual disciplines that are your weakest, prayer is probably going to be up at the top for most of us. Yet what does Jesus do when he's sorrowful? Or when he's in peace? He turns to the Father in prayer. He asks what Matthew records as one line of prayer. Father, if it be your will, nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will, is actually much longer. How do we know it's much longer? Jesus comes back and he says, could you not stay awake even an hour? Jesus has been praying for an hour the first time. But the point is that Jesus is overwhelmed with sorrow, but he doesn't dissolve into fretful anxiety. He turns to the Lord in prayer. In other words, Jesus' frailty, what does it do? It leads him, it drives him down to his face, to dependence on God for everything. Now, Jesus has already been telling us, we've been rehearsing this time and time again in the Gospel of Matthew. What, is it, what does it mean to be a citizen of the kingdom of God? It means that you are dependent upon God for everything. And what do we see here in Jesus except that he is a model citizen, the king of the kingdom of heaven? What does he do when he's surrounded by sin on all sides? When he's surrounded by temptations to be fretful and to be anxious, but he is driven to his face in prayer and complete and total dependence upon God for everything. The disciples have been told that they will fall this night. In Luke, they're told this, which is a particularly, this one makes me tremble, I think, when I hear this. Luke 22, 31 to 32, Jesus is telling the disciples, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you all that he might sift you like wheat. But I've prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Now, now Matthew does not record that. Luke does. Matthew skips over that entirely. But... If we were to place this in the timeline of when this happens, it just happened. Literally, Jesus has just told his disciples, Satan is coming to sift you like wheat. So the situation is dire. And I have no doubt that the disciples truly have heard that and they're, they're concerned about it. I'm sure they are, yet it's still not enough to keep them awake. I want you to imagine for a second that you are one of those Christians in Afghanistan. 
I want you to just, just, if you can, just imagine to the best of your ability that you have a house in Afghanistan and you and your family worship in that house regularly. Your name has been turned over to the new governing authorities in the region. They have a list and, and your family's name is on it, your residence, your address and everything. They've gone to your door some days past and they've marked an X on your door, noting that there's Christians inside this residence. You daily look out your window, trying to keep everything dark and trying to keep your family hidden and quiet, and you see soldiers gathering out on the streets. They're doing their soldiery thing, whatever it is that they're doing. AK-47s and M4s strapped around their necks. And you're looking at them, trying to read their lips. Maybe you can catch part of their conversation. And they're talking about this and that. And occasionally they look to your window and they point. You duck back behind the blinds, fearful that they might see you and know you're there. They already know. Can, can I ask you a question? How would you sleep at night? Would your sleep be really good sleep? Or would it be labored? Eventually, I'm sure you'd pass out from exhaustion, but surely it would be a struggle to go to sleep. Knowing that at any moment, they're going to break down that door and they're going to come after me and my family and kill me. Do you think your prayer life would struggle as mightily as it does now? How difficult would it be to fall on your face before the Lord and pray. Would it struggle like it does now? I, I, I just don't think it does. It would. Jesus leaves his disciples with that charge this second time. Stay awake and pray. You're going to be sifted like wheat. Satan is coming for you. I have even prayed for you. Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. And the troubling part of that passage is... Permission was granted to him. It's coming. To the point where I've had to pray for you. You need to stay awake and pray lest you fall into temptation. Needless to say, the stakes are high. And it shouldn't be hard for them. Weren't these the same disciples who were just saying, Lord, we're going to follow you to the end? No way, we're going to turn away. Jesus captures it all right here in verse 41. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. you got to think, after he's come back and he's found them sleeping the first time, and the second, got to think that at this point, that's a little bit of a jab to Peter. That he's probably recalling what just happened, what he had just said to Jesus, and he's remembering and he's going, boy, all those commitments that I made. And now I can't even stay awake and pray for myself. This is a feeling that's probably common amongst all of us Christians, maybe. Maybe you felt this. An eagerness of the Spirit to follow Christ, but it's followed by a feebleness of the body to actually see it through. You ever have that? You know what I'm talking about? You, you, you resign yourself, I'm going to stay with it, I'm going to grow, I'm going to follow Christ. 
I'm going to punch the devil in the face. Team Jesus. Woo! And then you go to sleep, and you wake up the next morning, and you go, what was all that about? What was I so excited about? What were the commitments that I made again? Can, can, I really, can I really do that? Why was I so excited about that? And that feeling just sort of dissipates. Or you get really excited about Jesus, and then you, you go and talk with your friends, and they're not nearly as excited about Jesus as you are, and then you start to grow cold in your excitement, kind of like they are. The point is, you have a willing spirit, and you have a spirit that's really gung-ho, and I, I want to follow Christ, and then a flesh that just is really weak. We find it in the disciples here. We see it in ourselves. But do you notice that we don't find it in Jesus? We don't find that weakness in Jesus. That's not what we see. We see a willing spirit and a willing flesh in this little scene, in a tiny little garden, in the middle of the night, we get this perfect little picture of exactly why Jesus had to die. Because it turns out our flesh is simply too weak to follow anything that the Lord commands to us. We not only see this in our own resolve, in our own commitment to follow Christ, but we see this in the Old Testament all throughout. God gives the law to his people. He commands them, do these things, do not do these things. And is their flesh able to follow the commands of the law as simple as they might be? Not a one of them. In fact, what does Paul tell us in Romans 8, 3-4? For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. When faced with satanic oppression, our flesh is weak. When faced with obligations of the law, we find our flesh is weak. When faced with trials and tribulations like the disciples, what do we find? But our flesh is weak. But Jesus, when faced with those same obstacles, demonstrates absolute dependence on the Heavenly Father. When He encounters physical persecutors and kangaroo courts that we're going to see in just a few passages, he says, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. When he encounters spiritual prosecutors that threaten him with the penalty of death, he says, on the third day, I will be raised. When forced to drain the cup of the wrath of God to the dregs, he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The simple truth, brothers and sisters, is that the disciples perfectly demonstrate that we have been weakened by sin. That we have not the ability in and of ourselves, to carry out the commands of God. Jesus does perfectly. If we're forced to drink the cup of the fury of His wrath, then we would not only be put to death, but we would live under the weight of His wrath forever. And deservedly so. 
But Jesus is the one over whom death has no claim because He never gives into any temptation in His flesh. He is tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Where we were weak, too weak to stand, Christ has proven strong, and He has taken on the deep sorrow of the soul that comes with facing the wrath of God for the weakness of my flesh and has given me not the cup of the fury of His wrath, but the cup of blessing. It's not the cup of isolation that we drink, but the cup of inclusion. I drink from the fruit of the vine as we will in just a moment, not as one who is a reprobate outcast from the kingdom of God, but one who is included at the table of God. Because of Christ, I have said that we are all sin addicts, meaning that we're pleased by sin, by our nature. God, through Christ, though, has given us a new nature and He has given us a new love with that. Where we can seek God and please God and our attraction can be toward the immeasurable riches of His grace found only in Christ. Now you may think to yourself, I'm not addicted to anything. Your addiction may be fear. It may be anxiety. It may be lust, pride, fear of man, depression, anger, resentment holding grudges, greed, love of money, unbelief, drunkenness, debauchery, pornography, homosexuality, insubordination, gossip, disrespecting parents, absence from church, profanity, fornication, unloving demeanor, laziness, unrepentant heart, ingratitude, adultery, gluttony, selfishness, to name a few. And at any given point in my life, I may visit any number of those things and may camp out there from season to season. So of those, I'm going to run to one more than another. You're going to run maybe to a whole different group of them than I will. But the point is that we are far too easily pleased by the flesh and it's going to manifest itself in a number of these ways where we're going to pursue sin after sin. All of them should be confessed. All of them should be turned from. All of them should be repented of. All of them should be despised and fled from. But every single one of them, all of those addictions that we deal with, do you know what they are? They're a reminder that you need Christ still. That's what they are. They're a reminder that you are still in need of Christ every single day. Now, somebody may be hearing this and, and realizing very well the sins that you struggle with on that list, or you may even have a whole other list that you're thinking of too, that you struggle with. And there may be even some self-consciousness in you that says everyone around you is judging you because they know what you struggle with, and they're looking down on you. And I, I can say that I cannot guarantee you that's not the case. Although some may be dealing with judgmentalism, and that's their sin that they're dealing with, ironically. So perhaps you're a little self-conscious. But let me tell you, there's a worse place to be. 
There is a worse place to be than where you are. There is a place that hears that list of 30 sins and goes, not me. Which is particularly sad. Do you know why? Because I stand here knowing that you need Christ just like I do every day, but you have no idea why. So the reality is, you're telling yourself, I don't need Christ. But do you? Are you here this morning understanding your need for Christ? Are you here this morning actually seeing the sins that are sitting right in front of your face and understanding? These are the evidences that my flesh is weak. These are the reasons why he had to face God's wrath. Do you understand that those sins mean you're guilty along with the rest of us? We deserve the wrath of God. And yet, here is Christ who stood in the gap. So do you know what your weaknesses are? If so, do you believe that Christ's sacrifice is enough? Because here's what we so often struggle with, is wallowing in self-pity. We say to ourselves, here is this sin that I struggle with, and you know what? There's no way he wants to hear this confession. It's pride masquerading itself as self-deprecation. You're saying to yourself, this is the sin that has outrun his grace and his mercy. This is the sin for which Christ could not have died. This one right here. This addiction. Not realizing that we're all in the same boat. Do you believe that his sacrifice is enough? That it paid for your sin? Now, can you go so far as to tell your weaknesses to others? How did we get, as a church, to the point where we can't talk about the sins that we struggle with? How did that ever happen? How did a people who were bought by the blood of Christ, who come together all admitting their need for Christ, walk away, and when, they, when people say, how you doing, you go, good. How did we get there? How are we never able to sit down with our brothers and sisters and say, you know what? Of those addictions he listed, there's four or five of them that I got. How did we get to the point where that was a shameful thing? How can we not, with Paul, boast in our weaknesses so that we can show the magnitude, the glory, the grace, the mercy, the strength of Christ? Can you tell your weaknesses to others? Or are you still convinced that you should be ashamed and held under the weight of sin? Challenge. Join with brothers and sisters around you and let them know. Open up. Tell them. Rejoice in the forgiveness that you have in Christ. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift that you have given to us in Christ. May your word of grace and truth set on us as we find ourselves also weakened by the flesh, difficulties in paying attention and all of those sorts of things. We pray that the truth of the text would not be lost on us. That we, along with the disciples, are weakened by the flesh, and yet Christ has proven strong. Pray that we would be able to celebrate the strength of Christ for us. In Jesus' name, amen.